Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Then we move to verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks God for your word, uh, that you speak to us so powerfully through it, and that it is uh, the way that we are able to meet with the God who made us and loves us. And we pray that your spirit will enlighten it. Uh, the words of these, of these pages today, so that we may draw closer to you. Amen. So, my role as pastor of children and families, right, as we've probably understand already, and, and a big part of my role is to ensure that children are brought up in the Christian faith and that parents are equipped to disciple and train their kids as Christians, right, and not just parents, but the church as a whole. Uh, and that's why I've chose, chosen this passage today. The, the book of Deuteronomy deals with the issue of keeping the faith alive, really, uh, keeping that, uh, that flame burning as they enter uh, this new era as God's people. Uh, it is saying to Israel, even once you're in this land, safe and sound, make sure you keep the faith. Uh, Israel's religion wasn't a means to an end. Uh, it was a continual response to the graciousness of their God. And for Christians, it's the same. And so the big question that uh, we can answer from today's passage is this. How do we make sure our faith is transferred uh, to future generations? And to do that, we want to understand a little bit about the background, the context of this passage. Israel, God's people, the Jews, are on the verge of entering the promised land, right? Uh, About 40 years prior to this passage, they were slaves in Egypt and a paranoid pharaoh, you probably know the story, ordered the killing of male children born to Israel. Israelite women, right? Uh, But God intervened and uh, miraculously and dramatically delivered them from Egypt, taking them through the sea to the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, And it was there that he gave them the Ten Commandments and many, many other laws. 
these laws were to be the basis of civil and religious life for Israel. They would be what set them apart from the surrounding nations. And they were to be followed as a response to God's gracious act of rescue from Egypt. They were poised and ready to take possession of their promised land. But, as you know, Israel chickened out. They rebelled against God. And as a punishment, they were sent to wander around the desert for 40 years until all of that generation had died. And now here they are, ready for the second time to enter the promised land. Moses has just reminded them of the Ten Commandments, and now he's preparing them for their new life in the land of milk and honey. He gathers them together and tells them what it will look like for them to maintain covenant faithfulness with God in this new, exciting phase of their history. And so he begins with the backbone of Israel's existence, and that's the nature of Yahweh, their God. Because before we even get concerned about passing on our faith, we need to understand that God... Uh, who is the basis of it. And that's how the passage kicks off. If you have a look in verse 4, if you have your Bibles there in front of you, Moses starts with this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, hear, listen, right? Uh, It's the translation of a Hebrew word, shema. Uh, It means to listen or pay attention. I was thinking, do we really have uh, an English equivalent? It's probably listen or it's not very interesting. But I thought in Australian English, we have probably the closest equivalent, and that's oi, right? Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to call the sermon oi, but I didn't know people might think ol or like not understand it properly in the bulletin. But oi, right? He's getting their attention. That's what Moses is doing. He stands there and says, oi, guys, listen. A friend of mine who was a teacher uh, at, at the school that I used to work told, convinced his year seven class that one of the things, one of the assessments you have to pass in school to be a teacher is how well you can say oi to get a class's attention. And the class believed it. Um, it should be. It's a good one. Um, uh, but what follows is, is what's considered to be the pivot around which everything in Deuteronomy moves. It's known as the, shem, the Shema, right? And it's repeated daily in Jewish households. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the statement of God's exclusivity. Yahweh Anytime you see the word LORD written in all caps, that's Yahweh. That's God's covenant name to the people of Israel, right? Yahweh is their God, not just for them, but for all Israel and all the world. His author, Christopher Wright, puts it like this. Our text is asserting quite distinctively from the surrounding polytheistic religions, means religions that believe in more than one God, that Yahweh is God. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one God. He is a singular God with his own integrity, character, will, and purpose. The one God whom we are to worship. And so he kicks it off with this very basic understanding of who God is. We are not like the other nations. We have one God. Our God is one. And so now Moses has established this truth. Uh, We're given a few clear ways on how to respond. If this is true about this one God, Yahweh, who they are to worship, how should the people of God respond? And I think these responses holding them a key to ensuring the continuation of our faith, right? And the first one is this, to love God with everything you have. To love God with everything you have. Have a look at verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Israel's response to God is to love him, to give him their total allegiance. And now the very fact that this love is commanded tells us that this love goes beyond an emotion, right? 
Yes, sometimes the love you feel for God will be emotional. It will be like butterflies in your stomach that you may have felt on your wedding day or on something else like that. But, but the fact that this love can be commanded is, is reminding us that this love is more than just an emotion. It's more than just a nice feeling we have towards God. It involves an act of the will. And we see this very clearly in the way they are told to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength. The word heart in the Jewish context isn't talking about feelings or emotions. It, it refers to the, to the seat of our intellect, will, and intention, right? Uh, the sort of love that shapes your character and your choices. Uh, it's your soul. You're meant to love God with all your soul, Israel are told. And in this context, your soul refers to your inner self, who you really are. Not just your outward actions, but your very essence. And then to love God with your strength is literally to love God with your very muchness. Which is, we don't use that term, but that's cool. Hey? We love God with your very muchness. right? To the extent of all your capacities and abilities. All this to say is, is, is pretty much this. That our love, well their love, Israel's God, love for God should be over the top. Over the top, crazy, involve all of their capacities inside and out. It's a love of integrity where your actions match your words and your words reflect your heart. It's all tied up together. And of course, when we look at God's oneness, it's no surprise that this type of love is commanded in response. If there's only one God, then his people are only to have one united love for this one God. Uh, There are no divided loyalties in this love. You don't devote your actions to one God, your crops to another, your thoughts to blah, blah, blah. No, there is one God, Israel, and you are to love that one God with your whole oneness, with your everything, inside and out. And Jesus reiterates this command to his disciples, doesn't he? And he calls it the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, strength. And Jesus also adds the word mind. The first step, like for Israel, is for us as Christians, uh, is to love God with all you have and all you are. A complete, all over love of God. And as we seek to share the truth of God with the next generation, it really does involve more than just words and Sunday school classes. It starts with our over-the-top love for Him. And it will lead naturally to what Moses says next, right? So you love God with everything. With all you have, you love God with it, right? But then second, you live a God-saturated life. Have a look at verses 6 to 9. It's talking about living a God-saturated life. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. These words give us a picture of saturation. Saturation. The life of a faithful Israelite is to be covered and saturated with God's word and law. It's meant to be on their hearts. It's meant to be at the very essence of who they are. They're meant to teach it to their children. Ensure that their kids know the truth and grow up believing it, right? But then follows a series of couplets. He says, when you sit and when you walk. Right? So like two extremes. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie it on your hands and on your foreheads. Put it on the gates, on the doors of your house and the gates of your city. This is the author's way of being repetitive and reiterating the same point. God's truth should be on, in, over and through every part of your life. Waking and sleeping, eating and drinking, working and playing, 
you know, all the other little things that fit together, right? Everything you do, your life should be saturated with God's word, with God's promises, with God's law, Israel are being told. This was taken quite literally by the Jewish people who would and still do put sections of the Torah in little boxes around their hands or on their heads and on their doors, right? Uh, I don't know if that's exactly what Moses was telling them to do, but it is a nice tradition and a nice reminder. But beyond that physical act of putting God's word around the place, it's meant to saturate all of who they are. I'll give you a little example. Uh, hobbies can be, a big, like, can, can be something that saturate us, right? I'm into cycling. Not as much now as was probably the last two years, right? Uh, sort of passions died down a little bit. I don't know. Anyway, it's by the by. Um, wasting your time. Uh, so, but, but if you were to talk to me over the last couple of years, for any extended period of time, you'd know that I was a fan of cycling, right? Because I'd bring it up. I'd force a segue in any conversation so I could bring it up, right? Uh, there'd, be, like, uh, there'd be cycling sermon illustrations. Much like Travis, there's usually three or four Star Wars sermon illustrations in, uh, in his sermons, right? Uh, I'll defend it when people tell me smack about cyclists. I, I, I ride a bike. I watch cycling. I read about it. Listen to podcasts about it. I talk about it. It's my main mode of transport to and from work. So that Leon and the other crew are blessed to see me rolling in in my Lycra uh, during the week, right? Um, I'm even very tired and grumpy between the months of April and October every year because I stay up to 2 a.m. watching races, right? A hobby can saturate you and it can become way more to you than just a hobby. It begins to define you, right? You're saturated by it where people just know, there goes that cycling guy, or there goes that Star Wars guy, or there goes that insert hobby here. You're saturated by it, right? And this is what Israel were commanded to do. There should be no mistaking their allegiances and love. And Christians are to do the same. Paul, the author of many letters in the New Testament, tells us that the outside, out, outward sign of Judaism which is circumcision, has now been replaced in Christians by a circumcision of the heart. That is actually a heart change. It is not a physical body change, but it is the change of one's heart. He also speaks personally and says that he has been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer he that lives, but Christ who lives through him. As Christians, our life should be saturated by the love and the word of God. It affects how we eat and sleep, even basics like that, how we drink, how we talk, how we work, how we play, how we fight, how we love others, how we live, how we spend our money. Everything should be saturated in the gospel. It's not just a part of what we do. It is who we are, the very essence of our being as Christians. Our hearts have been changed by the love of Christ. And I read some research recently on kids from families, so kids from Christian families who remain Christians throughout their lives, right? So some research, what are some of the key indicators uh, that someone will remain a Christian throughout their life besides uh, God's divine election? But we can discuss that at another time. Um, But one of the big reasons was their parents' faith was evident in all areas of their life. Their parents' faith was evident in all areas of their life. It wasn't just about cruising off to church on Sunday. That wasn't enough. But when they saw their parents' faith in how they worked and how they brought their kids up and how they... Uh, divided their time well and how they exercised and how they attended their children's sporting games and how they spent their money. This is what left a lasting impact on these children, that they would see a gospel-saturated life in their parents. Because when they see that it is more than just a tradition 
or a habit, we just rock up on Sunday because it's nice or it's what my parents did. When they see that it's more than a tradition or a habit, it's the very essence of who we are. Our faith becomes something concrete, doesn't it? It becomes something real. It becomes something beautiful. It becomes attractive. It becomes practical and very useful. It saturates us. And when this happens, the younger generation will notice and ask questions. And this leads us to the last point the passage makes, right? So so we're told to love this one God. Uh, We're told to be saturated by God and his laws and and, and who he is. And then thirdly, we are to be grounded in grace. We're to be grounded in grace. And this this is super important. Have a look at verses 20 to 25. In the future... When your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws that the Lord our God has commanded you? My children often ask me questions like that. Uh, Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Why do we do this, Dad? You can imagine little Jewish kids asking, why do we do this? Why, are we, why do we go to synagogue, right? Why do we keep kosher? Why do we offer sacrifices? Why do we read the Torah every day? Uh, Why do we follow these laws and these statutes? Why? Because I said so, son. That's not a good answer, is it? That's never a good answer, Um, although um, I use it. Uh, What about, it's just what we do. It's just tradition. It's it's just what we do. That's not a good answer either. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's really not a good answer. But I want to share with you an equally inappropriate answer, right? Here's an equally inappropriate answer to that question. Why do we do all these things, Dad? Oh, well, we want God to love us. So we do these things so God loves us and we have his favor. That's the wrong answer. Let that sit with you for a moment. That's the wrong answer. When asked why, the answer is given. The answer that is given is a recital of the good news that God has rescued them. Have a look again. When your son asks you, tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. What's going on here? Well, the people of Israel are not obeying these laws to earn God's favor. They are doing them as a response to God's grace. His unmerited favour, the favour they don't deserve. It's like he rescued us, therefore, the Jewish religion is all about God's grace, his unmerited favour, God granting his love and rescuing his people. You see it at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, you see it right here. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, therefore, God granting his love and rescuing his people. Not because they deserve it, but because he chose and loved them. I think a marriage illustration could be helpful here. As a husband, I'm conscious that my actions and words are a blessing to my wife, right? But I don't do or say nice things to earn her love. I don't, I don't buy a presence. Oh, I don't, actually, um, very often. But I don't buy a presence or do or say nice things to, to earn her love, right? Uh, if I do, if I am doing nice things to earn her love, it's not, it's not a very happy marriage. It's not how things are meant to be. Uh, Hopefully no one's doing it for those reasons. If you are, come chat with me. It's my job to help you out. Uh, But my wife loves me. 
She made vows to me to forever love me, and I trust her word on that. So, so why do I love her? Why live in a way that pleases my wife? Well, because she's mine and I am hers. Because she, for some reason, chose this, right? We are covenanted together, and that's why I show love to my wife. And this is how the people of Israel would have approached the laws that God had laid out for them, right? Obey in response to grace. And it's the very same for Christians. The book of Romans in the New Testament outlines the basics of Christian theology. In chapter 3, Paul says this. It's a mouthful, but I'll explain it in a moment. He says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, non-Jew, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ. It's very verbose, Paul, isn't he? But uh, what he's saying is this. There is a way of being made right with God, and it's not through obeying the law. It is by faith or trust in Christ. When we trust that Jesus died to take the punishment for our sins and to reconcile us to God, we receive God's grace, His free gift of forgiveness. It's great news. But then it leads Paul to ask himself this question in chapter 6. Well, should we just keep sinning then so that grace may increase? If sin equals grace, then sin more, more grace. Awesome. No, his answer is emphatic. He says, by no means. We have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Christians don't obey to score points with God. They obey as a response to his grace and out of a changed heart because we have died to sin. And for me, this was a huge, huge reframing of Christianity. Many of, many of us may have grown up thinking that Christianity was about pleasing God, about staying in God's good books so that we won't be sent to hell. Even in, even in some good evangelical churches, people have grown up having this understanding, right? But this is the truth taught in the Bible. All we need is faith, that Jesus' death forgives our sins and we are made right with God for free. And this is a very, very practical truth. Listen to this. It's a very practical truth. Uh, Tim Keller, pastor and author, reckons that Christianity is the only worldview where someone can do something completely selflessly. Right? Reckons it's the only worldview where someone can do something completely selflessly. Why? Well, in every other worldview or religion... As beautiful or as intricate as they may be, you lack the concept of grace. You may do good to get good karma, right? You may do good to appease your God, or you may do good to make yourself feel better or look better in front of others. In every other worldview, there is a supposed spiritual benefit for your good deeds. But in Christianity, none, nada, zero, zilch, stuff all. You are declared good in God's eyes because Jesus lived and died in your place and merits it to you for nothing. Your good deeds won't add to your standing in God's sight and your lack of good deeds won't take away from it. You are free to live selflessly. There is no personal benefit for you in being good. So we, as the people of God, can live utterly selflessly for others because we know that God looks at us and sees Christ. And if we want to pass our faith on to future generations, it's essential that we grasp this idea of grace. When our children or others, anyone for that matter, ask us why we love and follow God, we need to be able to explain grace to them. Why? Well, if we give them this legalistic works-based reason for our actions, it's only going to lead to shame 
or fear, isn't it? If we tell our children we live this way because we want God to be happy with us, we're setting, we're setting them up to fail. Anytime they sin or stumble or do something wrong, they'll be filled with fear. Fear that, oh, maybe God now doesn't love me anymore. Maybe God's love will disappear. They'll be filled with shame, hiding their sin away, silently worrying about what you or others or God might think of them. And if by some chance they happen to live a good life, avoiding sin, if that's at all possible, or if they think they do, then they're going to be filled with arrogance and pride, thinking that they have paved their own way to a holy and magnificent God. If we don't grasp grace and pass it on, we, we turn our faith into something legalistic, ugly and dangerous. But if we teach grace, if we tell them we obey because we were slaves to sin, we were dead in our sins and transgressions, uh, but Jesus, God's own son, died in our place and granted us forgiveness for free. Well, Kids, we obey because he has transformed us. We obey because he's changed our hearts. We obey because we want to honour him in front of others. There is no guilt. There is no shame. There is no fear. And as the author of Hebrews says, because what Jesus has done, we should approach the throne of God with confidence. And that's my dream for my children and the children of this church and, the, and people all around us, that people understand through Christ we can approach the throne of God with confidence. We will strive to be good. We'll strive to honour God. And, and we will be humble when we do. But we will have the freedom to live an entirely selfless, self-sacrificial life because we know that it's Jesus' righteousness that counts on our behalf. Let's look through the flow of this passage again in case you've lost the flow following my rambling. Right. Uh, if we want to help future generations to grasp the faith that we proclaim, then firstly we need to know God. We need to understand who he is. And then to understand God means to love him with everything we have and for our whole lives to be saturated with his law, with his word and with his grace. And then we're to proclaim his grace, to make it clear to people that we obey because we have been set free. 